Well, hello there. My name is Andrew Brooks Klein. Uh, we are doing what we're calling a seven investing now quick take. So sometimes either we don't have a show day or we have a show planned where the people on it can't talk about sort of the bigger news of the day, or you have a day like today where that happened and we had some technical, technical difficulties with audio. Uh, so as I said, I'm Dan Klein. I'm being joined by Steve Symington. Uh, and we are going to talk about Under Armour earnings. Steve, have you owned Under Armour at any point? I don't mean the actual shirts. I mean the stuff. <laughs> yes, uh, I've actually had Under Armour in my portfolio for, I think, um, 12 years now, 12 to 14. So it, it's been a while and uh, I've just pretty well consistently owned it, I think, in some old uh, IRAs. So, yeah. So I haven't, I've never owned this stock and I'll get into my reasons for it a little bit later in the show, but it's, it's fair to say this has been a struggling company. This has been a company that has made some missteps. I think the biggest mistake they made is they were a premium brand that offered too much at discount. So now I live near an Under Armour outlet. An outlet is a good place to get rid of discounted merchandise, but you could basically get discounted Under Armour at Marshalls, at, you could buy it on Woot, which is an Amazon company, any place and... I don't think, you know, you don't see Lululemon for sale at Marshall's. And I right. really feel like they undercut the value of their brand. But let's talk about their earnings. Uh, they were surprisingly good. So they had a strong holiday quarter. But Steve, it wasn't that their sales were up. It's that they cut expenses yeah. uh, and their online sales were great. I think these were mixed numbers. That is not how the market took it. What's your take here? They were mixed, but they were better than people expected. So, I mean, if you're just to look at their headline numbers at a glance, uh, you'd be like, ew, that, that's not so great. Uh, but, you know, I, I guess uh, let's tackle the headline numbers first. They saw revenue decline 3% year over year. Uh, just over 1.4 billion is where they arrived. That was entirely driven by a 12% decline in wholesale revenue, which was just under half its total. And uh, it was nearly offset, though, by an 11% increase in direct-to-consumer revenue. And within that category, they saw a 25% increase in e-commerce sales. So that was... Really, I guess, no surprise. Uh, but a couple of things to keep in mind here is that uh, revenue for all of 2020 declined around 15% for Under Armour. Uh, and most analysts actually this quarter were looking for a drop of around 13%. So this was a lot better than most uh, people on Wall Street were expecting. Uh, that 3% decline, I think, was a notable step in the right direction. Uh, and also they turned kind of a surprise profit. Uh, they, they turned an adjusted profit of 12 cents per share. And this is one of those things, you know, you look at non-GAAP numbers, which usually, usually exclude things like stock-based compensation and, and restructuring expenses and all that. But actually this quarter, uh, their GAAP net income was a fair bit higher. It was around 40 cents per share, but that was mostly because of a one-time 39 cent per share gain related to their sale of MyFitnessPal. It was an app they acquired for 475 million, I think five or six years ago. Uh, they sold it in November to a private equity firm for 345 million, bolstered their cash balance by about 200 million in the process. Uh, but really uh, their adjusted results, they turned a surprise profit better than expected decline. Uh, so, so, yeah. so let's look at the good news here. Mm -hmm. The good news is their online sales, their direct-to-consumer, Nike, their main competitor, or at least mm -hmm. with men, their main competitor, maybe it's Lululemon as much with women, uh, both big competitors, they're working really hard on building that direct-to-consumer channel. Well, why yeah. is that? 
If you can cut out the middleman, if you can cut out the store, you make more money. You can, mm -hmm. in theory, sometimes offer your best customers a better price or an exclusive that might be a much higher price, but it's a very limited edition item. So there's a lot they can do with that. So that's the good news. Once they've captured your email and your credit card, that's a strong positive. But Steve, we've all been home for nine months. I've put on pants exactly one time in a year. I wear shorts. <laughs> I, I wear athletic shorts all day and t-shirts when I'm not on air. Is this things Under Armour has done or is this just a sign of the times? Uh, I think it it is a combination of the two. Uh, you know, they're benefiting from uh, e-commerce tailwinds, um, but it, it's it's also, you know, some of the restructuring they've done, they, they've, I mean, one thing we really need to keep in mind is that uh, they, they spent, I think it was between 550 million or 600 million on a restructuring effort, which included some, some layoffs, some, some streamlining. And uh, that was uh, a really ambitious effort last year. And what people are looking at uh, and what kind of remains to be seen at this point, because I think we need to give it another quarter or two is to see whether that restructuring is actually yielding the fruit that they desire. And uh, I think right now, this is an encouraging step. Uh, shares are up around 9% today uh, as a result. And I think that's reflective of, of people hoping that Under Armour has made a step in the right direction. But I think we do need to give it a little bit more time. Uh, one quarter doesn't make a trend. Uh, and this was just a, a better than expected time in a, a really crucial quarter for them. So no, but making rather than losing money gives you more runway. It gives you more time. And I, and I think <laughs> yeah. that's important. But Steve, mm -hmm. I often joke about the worst thing that happened to Under Armour was me. Uh, and I mean that in kind of a silly way. But if you're a premium athletic brand, if I want to buy into that, I should be able to have to pay a premium price so I can right. you know, look like the pro athletes. I'm not going to look like a pro athlete no matter what shirt I'm wearing. But I shouldn't be draped in Under Armour that I got in a discount bin because, frankly, yeah. I'm not a good advertisement. I don't know if you know this, Steve. I am not a world class athlete, and I could still lose a couple of pounds. So I don't. I, I wouldn't look, have guessed. I don't look great in an Under Armour shirt, and I feel like <laughs> if I pay the forty dollars it used to cost to buy one, well, that's opportunity cost loss, but at least it's profit for the company. Right. I feel like it's become an ordinary and not a premium brand. Can they correct that? Uh, yes, they, they can. Um, uh, that's actually one of the things that's really frustrated me. I'll take it in a slightly different direction. Uh, as a longtime Under Armour shareholder myself is that they failed to adequately embrace athleisure trends. Uh, and that's something that companies like Nike and Adidas have done really, really, really well uh, is, is athleisure is the idea that you can have athletic wear that you can kind of wear on a, you know, a, for, for leisurely activities. It doesn't have to be some premium uh, workout gear for some extreme athlete. And, and uh, I think that could actually broaden their appeal if they more um, effectively embraced athleisure, but they've been really resistant to that. And they try and position themselves as this premium brand. But then when you have uh, them trying to clear out inventory, trying to work on restructuring, trying to come into the new year really well positioned, uh, then it did, um, you know, arguably, uh, harm the the brand image in the process, but uh, I think that's uh, that's kind of what we hope to see is are they well positioned going into the new year, uh, and you know to that end uh, we look at guidance. I think for all of 2021, Under Armour called for revenue to climb in the high single digit percent range. Uh, that included I think uh, single digit growth in North America and high teens growth uh, from the international markets. So uh, they expect uh, things to kind of accelerate from here. Um, 
but that's uh, if that happens, I think shares will continue higher. Uh, but any hiccups along the way, they're going to get punished pretty badly. And Steve, you can be a premium athleisure brand. I mean, there's an awful lot of people buying Lululemon yoga pants that don't do yoga. And they're uh, not they're, cheap. <laughs> no, no, they're not. There's a lot of people buying, uh, you know, Nike golf shirts that aren't playing golf. Uh, you know, I own an awful lot of Nike stuff. Even at the Nike outlet, mm-hmm. the only discounts you see that are extreme are is on really failed merchandise. So you'll sometimes see like a really weird t-shirt at a good price. Yeah. And you'll see like odd size sneakers. Maybe they'll end up with like, there was one $200 sneaker that my son was really into, but the only size they'll have is seven or 19. Like, so <laughs> you, you don't see the Under Armour outlet is pretty much a good way to get discounts. The other thing I want to see them break out, uh, and they'll probably do this during the earnings call, which already happened, but transcripts hadn't come out yet. Uh, I want to see what their mask sales were because mm-hmm. they're selling a $30 mask. It's an excellent mask, by the way. Yeah. Um, and for a while, those were selling out. Now you can walk into the store and they're there, but I do think they're still selling briskly. And here's the problem. That's a great idea to generate some cash. At some point, eventually, we won't have a heavy demand for masks. Uh, I'm not saying masks won't maybe be somewhat a part of our culture and we'll use them when we're not feeling well or in risk situations, but we're not all going to have a basket of masks by the door. So I want to see that number. The other number that worries me, Steve, their U.S. sales, or their North American sales, so we'll we'll lump in our friends in Canada as well, (laughs) we're down 6%. Uh, while their global market grew 7%. Is this just a case where they burned out the U.S. and need to build back and maybe they didn't make the same mistakes globally? Uh, no, I, I, uh, I, I think that's sort of a, a broader challenge uh, that you see in North America. So I, I wouldn't call it indicative of a, an issue with Under Armour on its home turf. Uh, there's some pretty steep competition uh, with Adidas and Nike in particular uh, stateside. Uh, so that's that's one of those things that they're always going to have to face. Um, but again, they did call for, I, I think it was that uh, single digit growth in North America, which is acceptable. Uh, it's a big world out there and there's a lot of runway for them to grow uh, going forward. So I don't think it's an issue uh, so much there. Uh, but what I would do, and I haven't done this yet, is maybe compare the results uh, in North America to uh, what Nike has achieved at the same time. And, uh, you know, for Under Armour, this is a, a story right now of stabilization and then a subsequent rebound rebound and acceleration from there. Uh, but that's that's how I'd approach is to see like, hey, how are they, you know, how are they working and succeeding relative to their largest competitor? And uh, Under Armour's voiced several times that they you know, want to be uh, sort of the Nike, the next Nike. And uh, they, you know, that's who they need to take share from, uh, not only as their markets expand, uh, but as they work to better compete uh, because they are significantly smaller. And I think a lot of people don't appreciate that just because of the name. Uh, it's a much smaller company. <laughs> These are very good signs when, when you can, cut your way to success in the short term. So getting rid of unnecessary bloat and expenses, that works for a while and then you have to grow. So if you're looking at the roadmap for Under Armour, this is step one of the journey. It's the first time I've looked at this company and not felt yuck for a really (laughs) long time. Sorry for that technical analysis of yuck. But like for a long time, I really felt like this was kind of a devalued you know, like a brand, like, like Swatch now, like when I was in high school, Swatch was the coolest watch ever. Now who, who, who owns a Swatch? I do feel like there, there, there might be a comeback here for Under Armour, but there's a real long way to go. And it's one yeah. of those things where I'm, I think they need to feel some pain. 
I think they need to intentionally take product off the market. If that means burning shorts or donating them, uh, they cannot discount as heavily as they have. And I'll liken this to the ticket market. If you can always buy tickets to your favorite team on a third-party app at half price, why would you ever go to Ticketmaster or the team's website and pay full price? That's where Under Armour is now. They have to change that. Steve, thank you for doing this. Let me give a programming note here. So this was meant to be just a little standoff piece. So we're going to do this from time to time. Today, because we had some tef- technical difficulties with our live stream, uh, this is going to be followed by a discussion Max Chatsko and I had about story stocks. Uh, And it's going to be pieced together a little bit. There might be a jump cut after this, uh, but it was a really interesting discussion. So we hope you stick around. Steve, thank you. I'll see you Friday. And you're calling them story stocks. And I think of them as momentum stocks. These are stocks where the fundamentals of their business, you might be able to make a case for them. But what happens to them in the stock market is just based on wild happenstance. And I'll I'll give an example, Genius Brands. So Genius Brands is a children's television company that marketed itself in theory as we can be the Netflix for children. They own a bunch of properties you've never heard of. They have a really solid management team and the odds of them ever being anything are really, really tiny because it's an incredibly difficult space to break into when they don't own any real intellectual property But this was an internet darling where everyone went, wow, they have all this great management, ex-Disney, ex-Netflix, ex-whatever it is, and there's so much demand. And it's sort of like everyone who says, well, if we could just be the Chipotle of Chinese food and get 1% of the market, we'll be worth $10 billion. It's kind of nonsense. Max, you want to talk about this? I talked for too long. Talk about this. Yeah, I mean, you know, we've, uh, I think a lot of people have been trying to ask, like, well, the stock market's going up. It's crazy. Like, when does it end? Or is it a bubble? Is there not a bubble? Sometimes there's bubbles in specific areas. And I think one of the things that really ties it all together is that, you know, story stocks are kind of a bubble, right? Um, a lot of companies will launch or maybe they've been around for a while and never been too successful, but they come out and they just nail the marketing and the storytelling. And then their stock will go up a crazy amount, right? Um, and they haven't really earned it. They're just telling you about the future and there's no execution yet. Maybe there's not even accountability yet. So I think this is not going to end well for a lot of investors uh, in a lot of different companies, right? Um, so so, let, let me know. throw out a few, Max. I'll, I'll tee up here rather than you just going through it. So this is my favorite terrible company because all they are is a brochure, really, and a management team. Nicola, you, you point out it, it's, it's worth about $9 billion down from about $29 billion. What's the story and what's the problem here? Yeah, so this is actually a good example to lead with because, you know, it was, what was it, a $29 billion valuation not that long ago. And the story was, well, this is fuel cell, fuel cell vehicles. Oh, it's the next Tesla, right? They have a semi too. They also have pickup trucks. And even though there were criticisms or maybe more objective analysis, right? I think I hate that too when we pit it like bull, bear, black and white. No, <laughs> the whole story is you have to look at the good and the bad of every investment you make, right? Um, that's just how it is. So, you know, people ignored a lot of the the warning signs and now it's, you know, down a lot. It's still valued at $9 billion. It still seems kind of crazy based on some of the information we know now. Um, you know, so the nuances, you know, this is not really good tech necessarily. Maybe GM didn't even do a lot of due diligence, which seems to be a problem with GM. Um, you know, and, and fuel cell vehicles are going to have problems. Uh, they're probably not going to compete with, you know, battery 
uh, vehicle. So, um, you know, there's more nuance to that story, right? My helium-based car company based on floating cars would sound like a good idea if I made a really cool sizzle reel. And that's kind of what these companies do. And it's not to say that some of them aren't good ideas, but a lot of investors sort of chase, well, electric vehicles is the next big thing. How do I make money on this? We've seen this in the cannabis space a lot. And here's the reality with the vast majority of cannabis companies, you won't make money. And the same thing is true of an awful lot of these EV chase it companies. Max, next, you wanted to go with QuantumScape. I'm going to assume they make Playscapes for kids, but I might be wrong. Yes, based on quantum mechanics. No, it's a, <laughs> uh, it's a uh, solid state battery company, right? So uh, it, the co-founder of Tesla is actually a, a founder on the board. Um, so solid state batteries are the inevitable future. I've been talking about these forever and they're great, right? They can get like, you can have half of the size of a battery and the volume of a battery of today's tech, but you can get double the charge. So it's not unrealistic that one day we'll have cars that get a thousand miles per charge. That's awesome. That's amazing. So that's the story that everyone's investing in. The nuance here is this company's not going to have revenue until 2026, like substantial revenue it might even be 2027. That's five, six years from now. A lot can change. It's also not the only solid state um, battery company out there. You also have Toyota. You have Dyson, which is you know famous for its vacuums. A lot of other companies, you know, nipping around the edges or having huge research teams into this. Um, so by the time this tech is mature and commercialized, it might just be the default. It might just be how batteries are made. So having one company be the leader, I'm not sure that's how it's going to play out. So. You know, this company has been valued at some crazy valuations. Right now, it's at $17 billion. But again, it's not going to have significant revenue until 2026 or 2027. This is a great example of uh, a story stock kind of just, you know, having a great tailwind for momentum, and it's not going to work out. So I that, always – go ahead, Manisha. Oh, yeah. My question is, what's the rate limiting factor? Um, why, why is it going to be so slow? So what is the bottleneck that, need, that that they need to solve? They just need time. They need time to hammer out the tech. It's still not ready for commercialization. They still have to build a giant facility. Um, you win in a lot of these markets with scale, right? Similar like genetic testing, for instance. So it just takes time to get there, which is why it takes till, you know, 2026 or so. Um, so just, you know, buyer beware, maybe be a little more cautious here. We're going to take your questions, both the ones live from the show today and left over uh, from last time we took questions. They're not all biotech questions. So if you want to ask some other things, feel free, go ahead and do that. Uh, but Max, the next one here is one that drives me nuts because this is a people on Facebook who don't even look at the mechanics of the company just get very, very excited about this one. And that's plug power. Yeah, this is another one. So there's a lot we could choose from. I just picked four, which is like a fraction of a fraction of how many we could talk about, right? We could have a whole 24-hour show about story stocks, probably. <laughs> um, so Plug Power, it's valued at $34 billion. So that's 68 times sales, which is ridiculous for the market that it's in, right? Selling uh, fuel cells and, and things like that. Um, so not that long ago, it was valued at like $1 billion. It's kind of always limped along. It's never really been successful. Nothing's really changed. It's just telling a good story, as many fuel cell companies are, uh, about this hydrogen economy. Well, hydrogen's green. There's no emissions, no carbon emissions anyway. There's still water vapor. Um, you know, we can power cars and all kinds of cool stuff, right? There's a market for this. It's the next big thing. And the reality is, if you, 
you dig in, I mean, the hydrogen economy is going to take some crazy amounts of investment to get off the ground. We can't transport hydrogen through steel pipelines because they would explode. I don't want that. I don't think you do either. <laughs> Uh, we would have to change appliance standards if we're going to pump, you know, hydrogen gas through our homes like we do natural gas today. Um, there's also volume constraints. In order to store it in any feasible manner, you have to compress it a lot, like crazy high pressures, or super freeze it, uh, very cold, almost down to absolute zero. So that's very energy intensive, very expensive. Uh, there's just a lot of reasons that the hydrogen economy is probably not going to work. And again. By the time it's even possible to commercialize this technology, batteries are going to be even better. Uh, batteries are the future here. Um, and I know it looks like, oh, the battery only gets like 3% better every year. But, you know, the humble battery is going to win this race. It's the future of uh, mobile applications, of energy storage. It's, I don't think the hydrogen economy is going to work. And I think people are really overlooking that. Batteries get 3% better every year, except for the iPhone battery. I am not, I am not sure why that always seems promising for like the first two weeks. And then I go back to whenever I go anywhere, having to carry like three of those. I actually have one now that like charges it a whole bunch of times. It weighs like 10 pounds. One more Mac. Uh, and, I, and I apologize if I don't pronounce this cor correctly. It's Oncternal Therapeutics. That's a uh, ticker symbol O-N-C-T. Yeah, so Oncternal, so this is another one that's on Twitter and FinTwit, right? A lot of people are interested in it. Um, you know, it's up 340% just since November. No real news, no real development. Company hasn't earned it, but FinTwit to the rescue. Uh, so this, the story here is that it's working on antibody drug conjugates, right? Uh, that's pretty interesting technology. There's been a lot of activity in the space with startups. And one example I see a lot of people point out is a company called Velocbio. And well, this was just acquired by Merck for $2.5 billion. So maybe Oncternal Therapeutics, which is a small cap company, maybe that's the next one, right? Maybe it's going to be worth billions of dollars one day. But here's the nuance. Veloc Bio was actually spun out of Oncternal Therapeutics, and it took with it all the interesting tech that had commercial potential. Um, so there was actually the same company not too long ago, right? They originated the same lab. Um, and then Veloc Bio kind of was like, we're taking all this good stuff. And they left Oncternal with all the scraps. So, uh, you know, they have some interesting other pipeline programs. They could pan out. There's still not enough data there. But again, buyer beware. This is a story stock. Um, I'm not sure this is the winner in the antibody drug conjugate uh, opportunity. I am also working on antibody drug conjugates, but it's not going well. I have, I don't know what that is. So it, my, my research is less than successful. I'm hoping to, uh, to gain Spider-Man like powers and that has not happened yet. A reminder that people on this program may hold positions in the companies that are mentioned. Buying and selling stock carries financial risk, which could include the loss of capital. The views in this program should not be taken as personalized advice. Before acting on any of the information provided, listeners are encouraged to consult a financial or tax professional.